Good morning, beloved Covenant family. Boy, it is so good to see some of those faces. It's so great to see some of these faces. And how I miss the, seeing the faces of so many of you. Welcome to our Covenant family. Welcome to our online guests. And kiddos, I love you. I miss you. And I always love when I get to see your faces. Would you all pray with me? Well, Lord, we give you our hearts, our minds. We give you our lives, our relationships. And we throw ourselves wide open to your instruction, the work in us by your Spirit, as you continue to equip us to be your redeemed people in our life together. We open ourselves in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, we find ourselves in the middle of a sermon series called Home for the Holidays, in which we're uh, focusing on different ways that the theme of home surfaces in the scriptures. We talked about how Jesus' coming, that we celebrate obviously at Christmas, is the thing that makes us right with God. Jesus' coming is the thing that makes us right with ourselves. This morning we talk about how Jesus' coming is the thing that makes us right with one another. You know, we've encouraged all of you to uh, pray the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, to pray that prayer for one another on a regular basis. What we're focusing on this morning is some conversation that Paul has that uh, creates the context for that prayer. We're going to be looking at a passage that comes just before it and a passage that comes just after it. And it's not a coincidence what we find in those passages. You know this, relationships are hard enough as it is. We are such complicated people, and when you bring two complicated people together into a relationship, it only adds to the complexity. And then when you throw COVID into the mix, it is incredibly challenging the difficulties of getting along with one another. And it's so much easier to find ourselves at odds with each other and alienated from one another, to find ourselves pulling apart from one another in really unfortunate ways. So how do we navigate the challenge of relating with each other? So we're going to begin with Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be starting by taking a peek at verse 14, and then stepping back one verse and moving our way through the rest of that, and then we'll hop over to chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. So just a little bit of context for the passage we're looking at first. You may remember that the first 10 verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians are all about the difference that Jesus makes in the life of an individual. The whole reason that he came for us as individuals, to take us from death to life, ultimately culminating in verse 10 of chapter 2 in our becoming a new creation, our becoming his masterpiece created to do good works that he planned in advance for us to do. So outside of Christ, we were dead, but by grace and through faith, we are now alive in Christ. And then starting in verse 14, He talks about the difference that Jesus makes in us together, in our relationships with each other. Outside of Christ, he says, we were divided, at odds with one another. But now, through his love, we are one in Christ. We are his new dwelling. We are his new humanity. So Paul here in this passage is specifically addressing the tension that was found throughout the early church between those who had a Jewish background and those who had a non-Jewish or Gentile background, and some of the hostility and struggle and division that they experienced almost everywhere in the life of the church. 
But the tendency among us as human beings to divide and subdivide and multiply subdivide, that tendency in us is universal. Extensive research has been done to explore the way that this is true. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul captures this universal human propensity to pull apart and subdivide with three different phrases that he uses. So what the social sciences have been discovering in the last 30 years or so, the scriptures already made plain to us 2,000 years ago. When we are together with other human beings, apart from Christ, two things inevitably will happen. And then a third thing is likely to happen. First of all, the two groups, what social scientists call social categorization. First, when we walk into a room, we will inevitably divide up the people in that room, in our minds, into two smaller groups. The in-group, of which we are a part, and the out-group. It doesn't matter where we are, and it doesn't matter uh, who we are with. We do this without our even being aware of it. In a classroom, in a locker room, at a wedding reception, at a city council meeting. Wherever we gather together, we will inevitably begin to divide people into the two groups, those who are like us and those and who we like, and those who are not like us and who we may not like so much. I just finished reading a charming mystery by Josephine Tay called The Franchise Affair. And at one point, uh, there is a court hearing in which the lawyer for the accused looks across the room and sees the mother of the accuser. The two had met before, and they actually had a high regard for one another outside of the courtroom. But this is what the narrator says. I thought this was so insightful. He would have liked to go over and say, how do you do to her? But the game had been laid out on the squares now, and they were checkers of a different color. What a poignant way to describe how we inevitably not even aware of it, will divide one another up into different groups. Second, the barrier, what the, the social psychologists refer to as intergroup bias and in-group favoritism. Without our even being aware of it, we will inevitably view the group that we are part of, the people whose squares are the same color as ours, more favorably, with more trust, with greater loyalty, with a higher regard, with more of a sense of attachment, with a higher value, And we will relate with them with with greater ease and with greater peace than we do the people in the out-group who we will view with less positively, with less trust, with uh, less comfort, with less of a sense of loyalty, with less attachment, and seeing them as people with a lower value. So these two propensities, to divide people into two camps and then to value the one that we are in higher, those are proven habits of every single human heart. Then on top of that, there's a third habit of the heart that with the slightest encouragement, we as fallen human beings fall into all the time. And that is the dividing wall of hostility or what is known as outgroup derogation. If we're not careful, our view of the outgroup can shift from being less positive to negative. 
Instead of more positive and less, or good and better, it becomes positive and negative, or good and bad. It takes the smallest of provocations for us to shift in this way. And that provocation becomes justification. We already favor our group more than the other group, but it's so easy for us to shift from seeing the people in the out group not as less trustworthy, but as more dishonest. Not as less worth attaching to, but as more worth avoiding. Not as less worth our time, but as unworthwhile people. And the more this happens, the more tension and friction begins to surface in our interactions with those in that out group. And the more we want nothing to do with them. And then if I begin to feel threatened, if I begin to feel as though they are trying to take what is rightly mine, and then if, if we have vocal thought leaders, opinion leaders, who fuel our concerns and reinforce our fears, then it doesn't take much at all for our preference for our group to turn into prejudice against the other group, which can then slide into hostility and, if unchecked, into hatred. Division. That is the normal state of our relationship apart from Christ and his redeeming work between us. But just as he came to bring us as individuals from death to life and to make us a new creation, so he also came to bring us as a whole from division to unity and to make us into a new, a single new united humanity. Listen to the, word, the, to the wonder of what Jesus came to do among us and between us. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Just hear that again. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Listen to the message translation of Ephesians chapter 2. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation, and now he's using you, filling you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. 
We see it taking shape day by day. A holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. According to Paul, in our dealings with each other, apart from Christ, the truest thing of all about us will be our divisions. But in Christ, through Christ, by the power of Christ, the truest thing of all about us will be our unity, our unity in him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But here's the challenge. We have to cooperate with his uniting work. Because that tendency in us to categorize and favoritize and scrutinize and criticize is still strong in us even as people being redeemed. Let me just share an example. Think about us as a church family. What we share in common is Jesus. We are one in Christ, in our faith in him. He is our one shared allegiance that we hold highest, right? But then we get together at the church picnic. And there are those who drink the right beverage of crisp and sparkling essence. And there's, there are those who drink an inferior brand of flavored sugar water. So there's Coke Covenant and there's Pepsi Covenant. Suddenly we have let our love for something other than Jesus be the real basis for our deepest unity. Yes, of course, we all believe in Jesus but some of us are the true covenant, the faithful covenant, because we are the covenant people who drink the proper soft drink. But what soda example is that? Soft drinks are a frivolous example. So let, let me talk with you about something that really is much more serious and weighty. I'm going to make sure this side of the room sees this. Okay, of course we believe that Jesus is king. But who really occupies the throne of the Big Ten and who deserves to be the footstool? Well, isn't it obvious? So there's IU Covenant and there's Purdue Covenant. So I realize that these are, are more frivolous examples, but I think they point to much more serious examples that we have faced and have had to wrestle with as a church over the last nine months. During the last nine months, I can think of at least three issues that have risen up within the church that I believe many have elevated over our unity in Christ and allowed to become matters of division in our midst. Sometimes painful division. It won't be hard for you to think of these three things. The pandemic arriving in the spring, the racial uprisings in the summer, and the presidential election in the fall. When COVID hit and all the restrictions began to be put in place, we saw the rise of two camps. There was the wise precaution covenant, 
called fearful by the other camp and an unbelieving. And there was the trusting freedom covenant called reckless and selfish by the other camp. Then the racial unrest hit us in the summer. And once again, two camps began to form. There were the, they were protests covenant, accused by the other camp of being held in a cultural captivity to Marxist thought and critical race theory. And there was the, they were riots covenant, accused by the other side of, you've got to be kidding, blindness to the obvious bias within us and systemic inequities around us. And then came the election in the fall, and once again, two camps emerged. There was Trump Covenant, called unchristian by the other side, called the ends justify the means robbers of Peter to pay Paul by the other camp. And there was anybody but Trump Covenant, also called unchristian by the first group, and accused by that other side of being morally bankrupt compromisers in the areas of abortion and homosexuality. Yeah, 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 I, we get it. Yes, Jesus redeemed us. Yes, he's about the business of creating one new humanity in himself. But these are the things that really should define us and that we let define us, so we think. The masks, the police, the president. Paul understood something crucial about the unity of the body of Christ. Its unity has to be protected. It has to be fought for and worked for. It has to be strengthened all the time. There are two ways for us to do that, and Paul addresses both of these in chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. You may remember that in the prayer in Ephesians 3, it ends with a prayer that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. And in these passages, Paul is talking about what exactly that means. So let's look at the, the second one that Paul addresses first. In verses 7 to 16, Paul tells us that we are called to strengthen the body by investing in it, by serving the body the church family in love. Beginning in verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In verses 7 to 16, Paul's, Paul tells us that we are called to strengthen the body by serving it in love. We're called to recognize it as a larger and defining thing of which we are a part, and to use our time and our gifts to invest in the body, every one of us, by sacrificially serving one another. The result, says Paul, is that we will grow towards maturity together. 
you know this, but there is a way of thinking about the church that has become increasingly popular that says the really mature view is to realize we don't really need the church. We've kind of outgrown it. What matters is my own spiritual growth on my own terms in the setting that works best for me. So a little Matt Chandler here, a little Tim Keller there, and hey, I'm good to go. But according to Paul, that is not a mature view of the church at all. That's an immature one. You know this. One of the surest signs of maturity is when we begin to think of other people. And one of the surest signs of continued immaturity is when we continue to put ourselves first. The essence of maturity is to begin to become aware of and to respond to the needs of others. A couple of Sundays ago, I shared some passages from the book First Light by Jeffrey Wellam. He was a Spitfire pilot during World War II in the Battle of Britain. In the book, he talks about the highlight of his entire flying experience, and that's when he finally gets to, to solo. After hours of tandem instruction with someone else in the plane with him every single minute, he's finally allowed to take off, to fly around the airport, and to land all by himself. And he describes the sense of elation that he experiences when he finally gets to do that, when he finally solos. Just him, all by himself, nobody else in the plane. The joy, the freedom, the exhilaration, feeling so independent, so mature. What could be better? But as the book unfolds, Wellam begins to discover that there is, in fact, something better than flying solo, flying with others. And that's just a theme that surfaces again and again and again in the second half of the book. He describes looking around and finding his wingman, Tommy, waving and grinning every time before they head off on a mission together as they take off and climb away from the field, wingtip to wingtip, to protect one another in case of attack. He describes uh, often, while he's in flight, looking across at his wingman and catching his eye and giving a thumbs up. He describes flying in a formation of 12 spits, just feet apart from each other, breaking in out of the clouds and up into the brilliant sunshine and the sense of elation and joy that comes in that moment. He describes checking in with his wingman before he dives in to attack a pack of Messerschmitts. He describes flying just a few feet above the cockpit of a damaged British bomber to try to encourage the crew and the pilot with his presence to cheer them on towards home as they are damaged with flak holes in their wings and one of their engines shut down. He's saying to them, keep going, lad, you'll make it. He describes his ground crew running up to him to make sure that he's okay when he lands late after a mission in a horrible storm with almost no visibility. It is so tempting in the spiritual life when we come to Christ to then fly off on our own and to think just about our own well-being and to lose sight of the rest of the body. But we're wrong if we mistake independence for maturity. In these verses, Paul tells us that we are called to strengthen the church by realizing we are part of it, by investing in it, by serving it in love. So before we go on, just a couple of questions for you to maybe write down or reflect on. Would you say yours is more a life of solo flying or flying in formation? How are you letting others strengthen you? And how are you strengthening others? 
what resources, which abilities of yours, what money, what time, what expertise are you making available to the rest of the church family? And what allegiance are we letting be more important to us than the unity of the body of Christ? You may have noticed that I hop past verses 2 and 3, and in those verses Paul tells us the other way that we are called to strengthen and protect the unity of the church, and that is with loving acceptance in a posture of humility. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humble, humble and gentle are the same two words, the only two words, that Jesus uses to describe himself. We find them in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble of heart is the opposite of self-importance. This word describes the lowliness or humility that results from seeing God as the great king worthy of our worship and seeing others as his wonderful image bearers deserving of our love and service. The eyes of the humble of heart are not on the self at all. Humility of heart is the self-forgetfulness that remains after I lay down my self-importance and turn my eyes up to God and out to others. Gentle has to do with how we respond to the self-concern that rises up within us. The word was used in the ancient world to describe tame animals rather than wild ones and benevolent rulers rather than despotic ones. It means self-restraint. Laying down whatever has us scheming and scrambling to serve ourselves, releasing and yielding everything to God rather than taking things in our own hands and insisting that that things go or be seen in our own way. Related to this is my confidence that God knows and will meet my every need. Gentleness is the peace and self-control that remain after I have laid down or offered up my self-serving desire. Paul also calls us to be patient, bearing with one another in love. How tempting it is for us to feel that the way to unity is through agreement, which really means the way to unity is through argument. Trying to get everyone else to see things the way that we see them. Trying to change about the other person what might move us to lump them into the outgroup category, rather than overlooking those differences in love. Patience and forbearance are words that only make sense if we abandon the idea that everyone must see things the same way that we do. Our unity isn't found in everyone else seeing things in the way we do. These words imply a willingness to admit we may not know everything, that there may be more for us to learn from others, even from others whose position is very different than our own. Patience and forbearance mean there are things about you that I wish were different, but rather than insisting that you change, I'm going to accept my heart towards you and accept you right where you are. Or said another way, I let what we have in common, the only thing we really have in common, which is Jesus, and our shared experience of his acceptance and forgiveness of us, I'll let that be more important to me than all that we don't have in common. Gentleness, humility, patience, forbearance, through these quality, Paul says, qualities, Paul says, 
We make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. God takes us cat-fighting, mud-slinging human beings, forever prone to pull apart and divide and subdivide, and through Christ, he fashions us into a single new humanity, a single new home in which he is present to this world. And he calls us to protect that unity that puts his presence on display in this world. To him be glory in the church. He calls us to protect that unity by serving the body in love and by accepting the body with humility. So before we conclude this part, a couple of questions to reflect on. If someone heard your interactions with or maybe about others in the body of Christ or, or looked over your shoulder and read your posts, what words would they use to describe the attitude of your heart toward those that you disagree with? What conviction or position or point of view are you most likely to elevate over our unity in Christ as being important, crucial for everyone to agree about? And is there something that you need to repent of? Some of us need to repent of our independence and our pride. Some of us need to repent of our presumption, assuming that we know exactly what other people are thinking without checking it with them. Some of us need to repent of our divisiveness, of our building barriers. Some of us need to repent of our hostility, of our judgment and our impatience with one another. Some of us need to repent of our selfishness, of taking from the body, but not giving, of withholding from the body our love and our service. Is there someone whose forgiveness you may need to ask? And so, covenant family, we are the body of Christ. We are the new humanity in Christ. God calls us to see the body that we are part of, to recognize that the only thing that we have in common is also the most important thing that there is, which is Jesus, in whom we all believe. We are called to protect the body, to support the body, to accept the body, to love the body, to serve the body, to be patient with the body, to be the body, and to glorify God, to glorify the newborn king in the church. May God make it so.